You may be seated. So good to see all of you here this morning. And as you're uh, finding your Bibles, you want to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 15. And as we're kind of coming to the summer, some of you might even be thinking about summer vacations. Um, one idea, you know, to go to the Grand Canyon would be pretty cool, right? I've, I've got a book. I'm not sure if I could recommend it or maybe you should avoid it, but I'm just going to tell it to you. If you're going to the Grand Canyon, it's called Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon by Michael Gagarin. And uh, he actually going back all the way to 1870, documents the about 700 people that have died in the Grand Canyon. Now, we kind of expect like, well, you know, I could see how that could happen. I mean, the Grand Canyon is huge. It's 277 miles long. It's 18 miles wide in different places. It's about a mile deep. It has fluctuating weather and can get really hot. And of course, you know, folks get dehydrated. And it, it's got like danger kind of written all over it. Now, uh, it's interesting when he actually accounts, how did all these people die? Well, some of them died like you might expect. The number one reason why people die in the Grand Canyon uh, was actually like flying, okay? You know, we got the idea, we'll fly in the canyon, right? You know, and maybe the pilot got distracted, who knows? But a lot of people have died that way. Some have died because... Um, of the flooding, you know, kind of like what's taking place right now, you know, all of a sudden the rain starts coming down and the, the uh, river just takes off and people have died because of flooding. Some have died because they're just lost souls. They've totally given up and um, in a great tragedy, they've taken their own lives. But some of the people that have died in the Grand Canyon have done so because of their own foolishness and carelessness. There are all these signs posted. They even have barriers that prevent you or supposed to prevent you from going over the ledge and to warn you to not go there. And yet, we know better, right? And there's a number of people that have died this way. So I'll give you some examples of that. 1992, there's a 38-year-old father, and he's got his teenage daughter with him. And, you know, as dads, we want to make it fun, Right? And so what he does, he ignores the warning signs. He actually jumps up onto one of the ledges, and he is pretending as if he's falling, right? And until he actually does, and he falls 400 feet, and he's dead, and it's no laughing matter. In 2012, there is an 18-year-old woman, and she's on hiking in the North Rim. Uh, they come to a place called Inspiration Point. It's blocked off. They have warning signs, but you know... I need some inspiration. And so she decides that she's going to go over the barriers, walk past the signs, and she sets herself up on inspiration point. And she's having an inspiration moment until the rocks started giving way and she goes plummeting to her death. I mean, just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a, one person died, two injured in a boating accident in the Grand Canyon. And yet it didn't have to happen that way. Warnings are given to tell us that this is dangerous or places that you shouldn't be. You know, God also gives us warnings. Warnings in Scripture for our benefit to keep us from death, danger, and destruction. And yet, if you don't heed them, you don't follow them, well, you're going to be like some of those folks at the Grand Canyon, like, huh, that's for other people. And to find out, that indeed you've put yourself into peril. 
You know, remember last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus absolutely calls every single person to make a decision, a decision about him. He says to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many of those who find it. There's the way of the world, do whatever you want, make it up as you go. All religions fit down here or no religion. And Jesus says, that is the path of destruction. But then he goes on in verse 14 to say, go through the small gate and on the narrow way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. It is life in Christ. Oh, it is so narrow because it is Christ and Christ alone. No good works, no group plan. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And your total trust is faith and faith is in him. And right after calling for decision, then he gives the two great dangers to putting your faith in Christ, the two great dangers that lead to deception and keep people from trusting and following Jesus. And the first one you find beginning in verse 15, verses 15 through 20, is the great danger of false teachers. Take a look what he says, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, beware of the false teachers, the false prophets. They not only misrepresent God, but they actually teach doctrines that deviate from the truth of Scripture. And he says, you want to beware of them. And notice, he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So shepherds would wear a cloth that was made out of wool. Prophets were known to have this kind of attire. And he says, you want to be careful because false teachers aren't coming in as sheep among sheep. They are coming in as shepherds to lead the sheep astray. And notice, how does Jesus refer to them? As wolves, ravenous wolves. Not the wolf that you might see at the zoo, like, oh, isn't that kind of cute? He's just kind of laying there like, when is this over? But ravenous wolves that are on the attack, and yet they're dressed up like shepherds. They're deceptive. And when Jesus spoke of false prophets, like everyone would be very familiar with false prophets. Because all you have to do is read the Old Testament and to see how false prophets operated. And the Jews were very familiar with them because false prophets had led to so much destruction and problems in their life and in their history. And how a false prophet functioned, and you, you see this when you read through the Old Testament, what did they do? They always told the king and the people what they wanted to hear, right? So like, hey, we want to keep people happy, especially the king. And so we figure out what does he want to hear, and that's what we'll tell him. And that's what they do. Now, the king and oftentimes the people, they actually knew that real prophets spoke the truth, you know, like guys like Elijah, and that the kings, they like hated true prophets because they would actually tell them what's going to happen. They didn't sign off on all their stupid and crazy and wicked and immoral plans. They confronted them on their false religion and their idolatry and their immorality, and they didn't like that. And so they'd ban them, starve them, chase them away. They didn't want anything to do with them. But they did collect around people that were known as prophets. And these prophets, they're false. They tell the king and the people exactly what they wanted to hear. You know, Jesus says, you want to beware of false prophets. These aren't just another view or another take. 
They are ravenous wolves, and they destroy. You'll find out just how sharp their bite is when they tear you, your family, and your community apart. And so Jesus makes this statement. The Apostle Paul, when he is giving his farewell address to the elders at Ephesus, he makes this statement in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he's telling these elders, listen, you need to be on alert and you need to be aware because, you know, let me tell you how false prophets work. They're like savage wolves. They're not going to be content to start their own operation someplace else. They're not going to be content to just be sitting in the crowd. They're going to want to have face time with the people. They're going to want a pulpit. They're going to want a platform. They are going to want to speak. And what's going to happen? They're like savage wolves and they will tear the sheep apart. Paul said something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. If you want to see just how sobering evil is, Paul said this about false teachers and false apostles. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, listen to this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Jesus will say in John 10, the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. What is he talking about? He's going to fight off and he will defend his people from the ravenous wolves that seek to destroy them. And Jesus says, beware. Beware of them, these false prophets. They're inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, verse 16, and this is how you'll know them. Look at this. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Jesus says, you'll know exactly. You can recognize them by their fruits. And see, everything reproduces after its kind. Good fruit comes from good trees. And he gives examples of like figs and grapes. He says, that makes sense. You get that. Well, when you have a false teacher, a false prophet, the reason that they give things that are not true and they mislead many and tear them apart and seem to bring wreckage to their faith is because that happens to be their orientation. And so he says, you will know them by their fruits. So what are these fruits of false teachers? Well, let me give you the three categories. First is, uh, we can see the fruit of false teachers in their doctrine. And that is in what they teach. False teachers seek to distort or deny Scripture. It all comes down to this book. False teachers are going to want to distort or even to deny it. Because what do false teachers do? They tell people what they want to hear. And so how a false teacher operates, it's not like, hey, what does God have to say in the Bible? And that's what we're teaching. That's what we're talking about. This drives our message. No, it's like, what do the people want to hear? What would be like helpful to them? What would make them happy? Or worse, what will then make them like me even more? Well, that's what I'm going to tell them. Uh, yeah. I'm going to come across as a pastor or a spiritual authority or a religious leader, but I'm going to tell the folks what they want to hear. And I want you to know that the tack 
is always on the Bible. To attack doctrines like inerrancy, to meaning, meaning that the scripture is without error in its original autographs, or to attack inspiration, that it is actually from God, it is God-breathed, or infallibility, that the Bible is fully trustworthy, the attack is going to be on on that front. Because once you can dismiss the Bible or distort it or say that it, make it up whatever meaning you want on any passage, all of a sudden everything is free game. It's a free-for-all. It is a slippery slope. And so that's what they do. The attack is always on the authority of God's word. Now, let me give you first-level theological issues. These are the essential at the core of the Christian faith. Let me just give them to you so that you know them. Like the Trinity, God is three persons in one essence. We just got done in our time of worship singing to the, the, the holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let me give you another essential theological doctrine, the virgin birth of Jesus, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's atoning death for our, our, our sins, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the need for grace because of human depravity and human sinfulness, justification by faith, and let me give you two more, the second coming of Christ and the authority of the word. If you deny any of these, you compromise them, redefine them, dismiss them, eventually you are not going to have biblical Christianity. And so false prophets are going to be known for their doctrine. They are going to deny the truth. So let me give you some examples of what this looks like. Some of you have heard of the Jesus Seminar. In 1985, there was a professor named Robert Funk, and he started collecting ultra-liberal, liberal, biblical, quote-unquote, biblical scholars. And he brought them, together, brought them together twice a year where they were going to cast judgment on everything that Jesus said. And I am not making this up. This is how they did it. They gave everybody four different color sets of beads, and they put themselves in the position to determine what Jesus said and what he didn't say. Now, all of them had come in with the presuppositions that Jesus wasn't God, that the Bible wasn't true, and so that's where they're coming from, and they eventually uh, published their findings. But it was, I tell you what, it was a marketing marvel. They wanted to get as much press and as much influence out of this as possible. So when they published their results in 1993, almost every major news magazine, it was on all the networks, they had press because all these scholars had determined what Jesus had said. And these are some of their findings. They determined, through kind of throwing out their different colored beads, that 82% of the, what was written in the Gospels, Jesus did not say. That's in the Bible, and Christians have held to this. This is the canon of Scripture. But we know better, 82% was, they said, he didn't say it. Of the 18 18%, they were really doubtful that he said these things. That gives us 2% that they thought were likely authentic that Jesus had said these things. And I want you to know, picking out little beads and like putting them in a little basket, friends, that is not scholarship. 
And this is a denial of all the essentials. And yet, it had a lot of influence. Let me give you some other examples of this. You see, once you start taking the Bible and ripping it apart with your higher criticism, and you put yourself in the seat of judge, and you are the authority, and you'll pick and choose and determine what God said and what he didn't, or he was mistaken here, or I have a totally different interpretation from the clear teaching of Scripture. Once you do that, it's everything is fair game. All the essentials, but let me tell you, it doesn't stop there. They'll go after identity, roles in marriage, family, human sexuality, morality, ethics. You pick and choose whatever you want. You don't like something, you dismiss it. You either deny it or you explain it away. And you'll come, I tell you what, they can be very creative in their explanations as to why what is clearly written is not the case. And what, what happens is you have doctrinal atrophy in churches there are many, many Christians that actually don't even know what the fundamentals of the faith are. They may go to churches. They're looking for some sort of emotional experience, someone to fire them up. They want to be a part of the cool group where this is what their community does, but they don't actually know truth. They don't really know God. Some of them do, but they're just, their spirits are not, and souls are not being fed truth. And what you have is doctrinal atrophy. And so in the midst of this kind of vacuum, when false teaching emerges and things that are said that are absolutely not true, there are some Christians, they don't even know that that's not true. Even when things are stated the exact opposite of Scripture, there are a lot of folks like, oh, well, the, my religious leader or my pastor said this, so it must be true. But is it? So if you want to give some like modern day, like even like in the last couple weeks examples of what this looks like, let me give you one. Maybe you read about this. It was pretty widely publicized. Not this Saturday, but last Saturday. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They have now the nation's first openly transgender bishop. And you're like, well, whoa, okay, well, how did that happen? I want you to know that they have been on doctoral demise for some time. But I want you to see just what this looks like. So Christianity begins in the first century. In the 16th century, you have a guy by the name of Martin Luther. He becomes this leader in the Protestant Reformation. And so for the 16th century, all the way till 1970, for instance, in terms of leadership, you always had males functioning in terms as a pastor, okay? And that makes sense. The Bible speaks of the fact that the elders, the teaching pastors, the leaders, they are to be the husband of one wife, okay? Super clear. It's, you can't mistake it. It's right there. Well, in 1970, they had had so many doctrinal compromises and it so distorted the Bible, they're like, you know what? We're going to do it a little differently because the spirit of the age on this one is that we should start having women pastors. And so they did. That started in 1970, about 50 years ago. And then in 2009, why they continued their evolution and their expansion, and the denomination started ordaining uh, openly partnered LGBTQ people because they, they wanted to ride the wave of the moral revolution. In 2013, they had their first openly gay bishop. And then, of course, that brings us to 2021. Just about a week ago now, you have... What's being celebrated in our culture, the first transgender bishop, meaning the guy overseeing all of it, but who wants to go as a gal. And I want, I'm telling you this 
Because once you compromise the Bible, it shows up in your leadership and it shows up everywhere. It is the fruit of false teaching. What it really is, it's a new religion. So just looking at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, why they have a completely different understanding of God, sin, humanity, Christ, the atonement, justification, the church, and scripture. This isn't, they want to be a part of a denomination. They want to be considered Christian, but it is a new religion. It is not biblical Christianity, even though they want to identify as such. And when you go after the Bible and you start picking and choosing what you're going to to have and hold to, and on the scripture passage that you don't like, you say, well, you know what? We're free to reinterpret this any way that we want, and you do, and you come out with some clever explanations. What happens is you not only directly confront and distort the scriptures, you start actually destabilizing the doctrine of God. For God himself, as he's presented, and as these false teachers present them to their people, is actually distorted. And if you want some examples, what does that look like? For instance, uh, erroneous views on God. There are folks that are now teaching that God is our mother. Despite the fact that there's approximately 170 references to God as father, in the New Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, 160 times refers to God as his father, and yet they distort this. And not only that, now you have erroneous views that like Jesus is now referred to as Mother Jesus. Where do they get that? It's not from the Bible. You see, they are jumping on this cultural, moral revolution, this wave that is totally, totally revolutionizing not only our society, but they are directly confronting God as he is and how he has represented himself and communicated who he is in Scripture. And then, of course, you've got like Oprah Winfrey and the great sponsorship of this course on miracles. And they may use religious-sounding terminology, but it is a new age Christ. This isn't Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. This is a new religion, and it is widespread. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. You see, what's happening is there is fundamentally taking place a redefining of Christianity in our culture. And the issue is not this, like, well, hey, what does Scripture mean to me? What do I want it to mean? The issue is, what has God said? What does it mean? That's the truth. That's what we hold on to. Jesus said, you shall know false teachers by their fruits. You can, you can find it in their doctrine. Let me give you another way. You can see the fruit of false teachers, and that is their effect, the effect their teaching has on other people. So, for instance, what they do, once you reject God's word and you put yourself in the position of authority, now you're in the potential to lead people astray, to lead them away. And that's what false teachers do. And you see this. Like, for instance, you have liberal professors, and they're at pretty much every university, um, sometimes religious universities, uh, secular universities. At the University of Oregon, we, we had a guy, he taught the Bible and New Testament. And this is what he did. Anybody that held to a biblical understanding of God, that believed the Bible, held to the scriptures, it's kind of like he made it his personal endeavor to shred them, to dismantle their faith. And some of you have seen this and experienced it firsthand. They will put the full court press. They will make you feel really foolish 
The attack is on. And I want you to know it is really being amped up in our culture today. And these liberal professors, they are looking to dismantle the Christian faith of students and get them on all sorts of paths except the one true path, which they absolutely deny. But then you also see this with cults today. Like, let me give you a two. And they have tremendous persuasion on a lot of people. You like the Jehovah Witnesses. And they, they don't believe that Jesus is God, that he's less than God. And I tell you what, they are going to actually perpetrate and present their belief system, and they are aggressive, and they're, they're fanatical, right? I mean, they're going to be at your doorstep, and they're trying to convince you that, no, 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 Jesus isn't God. He's less than God. And friends, I want you to know, that's not who he is, but you've got a wrong view of God, and you've got a, a lot of sway on a lot of people. But let me give you another one. How about the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? They have tremendous influence. And do you know, by the way, who they think Jesus is? They think that Jesus and Satan, Lucifer, are actually half-brothers. They believe that Jesus is the offspring, and as they refer to God as the Heavenly Father, and one of his many wives. Is that who Jesus is? Is that what the Bible says? Absolutely not. Now, I can assure you that that's not going to be their lead card. They're not going to start with that. But when pressed, that's what they believe. And cults like Jehovah Witness and and, uh, the Mormons, they they put a tremendous amount of pressure, legalism, on their people. Uh, In Oregon, where we lived, I got to see this firsthand. I mean, there were Mormons everywhere. Right across the street was a leader in their Mormon steakhouse. And I watched the control, the legalism that influence had on these people, especially women. And so Jesus says, you're going to know them by their fruits. I want you to know with false teachers, they are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. They are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. And then, of course, you've got like psychics and folks that are just sending out their little horoscopes and writing these things. I want you to know that there are many people that are influenced by this. I mean, like, look at these places. Like, go to like a psychics, you know, like these places right here. You're like, who goes to this? How does a place like this stay in business? Let me tell you how. There's a lot of people that are going to go in there that think that that lady or that gal is going to tell them their future, and they're going to spend a lot of money. When you, I don't know if you've ever read about people that are psychics, they know that it's totally a farce, but they actually think they're helping people, and it's a way to make a pretty decent living. And they have a lot of effect on people. Friends, you will know them by their fruit, and, and the fruit can be seen by their control and their effects on other people. Now, let me give you some really sobering statistics. In Pew study of religion in America, they have come with some rather shocking uh, revelations about what people believe, especially quote-unquote Christians, people who identify themselves as Christians. Did you know that two-thirds of people who are identify as one of the, in a mainline Christian denomination, Two-thirds of them believe that there are many religions that lead to eternal life. You're like, whoa. 
Um, as far as evangelical Christians, the, those who would say, yeah, I believe the Bible. Yes, you have to believe in the gospel. You have to have a personal faith in Christ. Listen to this. The statistic is 50% of evangelical Christians say that there are multiple religions that can lead to eternal life. And yet, what did Jesus say? John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, we got a serious problem if 50% of Christians in quote-unquote Bible-believing churches think there are a lot of different ways to get to heaven. In fact, other religions have it. Jesus said, I am it. I am God. And he is the one who's established how to have real relationship with the one true triune God. Jesus says, when it comes to false teachers, you will know them by their fruits. It'll show up in their doctrine. You're going to see it and their effect on people. And third, you're going to see it at times even in their own moral character. False teachers eventually can be distinguished by their pride, their greed, their manipulation of people, especially financial manipulation, and sometimes even their immorality. And it just shows up. They're motivated by fame, power, influence. They want attention. They want attraction. And they can be very commanding and very demanding. And what does Jesus say about all of this? Well, look at verse 17. So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus says, you know what? There is a judgment that is coming. If these false teachers do not repent and see the error of their ways, he says, their judgment is certain. And he spells it out. An eternal judgment. A judgment of hell itself. So what is needed? What is needed is what Jesus is going to talk about, and we're going to see it next week in verse 24. Look at verse 24. What is needed is that we are holding to his word. He says, therefore, everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and acts on them, does them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. What do churches need to do? We need to preach the word, not clever ideas, not just to entertain folks. And what do Christians need to be doing? Exercising discernment. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? That is our grid, right? And so you see the discernment given in God's word it keeps us from falling for the dangerous deception that is in our world. And the two greatest dangers of deception out there are, first of all, false teachers, but second of all, false professions of faith. Look what Jesus says beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, this, this day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He says, it's not about the words that you say. It's about the relationship that you have with me 
and my Father, that you do the will. And this in the Greek is a present tense, meaning you're regularly, continually, you seek to do the will of my Father. So this whole idea that, well, you know, I can just free to interpret Scripture any way I want it and make it up uh, any sort of um, interpretation that I would like. Friends, that doesn't work with God and Jesus says, you've got to do the will of my Father. How do you know his will? He has given it to us clearly in his word. And so remember this, we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone. But grace and faith in Christ is never alone. It is always accompanied by this relationship where we want to walk in his ways. Yes, we're imperfect. Yes, we miss the mark. We fall short, but our faith is solidly in Jesus Christ, and we are looking to walk in his ways, and we do so through his spirit. And do you see how Jesus says, like in verse 21, he says, my father who is in heaven, and who is going to be the one who is going to judge? Jesus himself. I mean, can you imagine if you were on this hill, there's the disciples, this huge crowd, they're hearing Jesus, and Jesus says, many are going to be saying to me, Lord, Lord, whoa. That is an absolute claim to deity, but it is also a claim that he's going to be the one who is going to do the judging. If you got some idea that Jesus is just a nice little religious teacher and he's got a nice little plan of how to keep your life happy, you got the wrong Jesus because he's claiming that he's God and he's judge. And he is making this statement here. Yeah, these people are made these great claims. They did prophecy, exorcisms. They did these wonderful miracles. Look, so how did they do that? If they really didn't know him, well, maybe it was just some sort of illusion. Maybe they just convincingly faked them. Perhaps there were evil powers that were involved, like some sort of demonic influence. But you know what's interesting? Jesus never says, yeah, I know that you did those things and he did them in my name. He actually doesn't affirm that at all when he presents this. No, what they're doing is they're putting their faith in their words. They got the lingo, they said the right thing, and their works We did these things, great things, amazing things. We did them. We did them in your name. And our faith is in that. And Jesus says, no, depart from me. I never knew you. There is probably not a more sobering statement than that. To think that you could have the right things as far as the word, say it. Show up in a church, do some good things, be of use, be of service. And to not know Jesus. Do you remember in Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus was teaching, and while he was teaching, it was reported to him that his mother and brothers had come to him. And notice, this is what it says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and what? Do it. It's not that you just heard it like, oh, that's a great sermon, really nice, sweet, but it means nothing to me. I don't apply it. It doesn't influence my thinking. It doesn't influence my behavior, my convictions. If you just hear it, you have missed it. Who's rightly related to Jesus? Those who hear the word of God and do it. You say, it's you profess to know me, but you don't possess me. I mean, I want you to really think, do you really know Christ? You know, there's many people that can play lip service to Jesus. Uh, they, they've 
got a lot of hope in their denominational loyalty or the fact that they went to a particular church or they've got a Bible or, you know, let's say they were watching some sort of revival deal on TV and they even put their hands on the TV, man. It was, it was a real meaningful moment. Or so often it's presented as like, hey, just put your hand up if you want to believe in Jesus. Good, that's great, you know, uh, or sign this card or just, hey, just say this prayer. Even though you don't even know what it really fully means, maybe you don't even believe it. It's just like, just say it. And you're done. And never will ever question it. You, you raised your hand. You went forward. Jesus says, do you know me? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. What's the test? Do you really know Jesus? Are you trusting in him and Christ alone for salvation? Are you following him in his way, his word? Like, your allegiance is for him. That's the test. Now, friends, I want you to know this is a heavy-hitting passage. And I'm trying to give it to you with a full force. Why? Because I love you and I do not want you to be deceived by false teachers or by a false profession of faith. So as you're thinking, maybe you're thinking about uh, vacation, you're like, I'm not sure I want to go to the Grand Canyon. Let me give you another one, high risk. The Southwest Florida Skydiving Club in Punta Gorda, Florida. Now, you can count on two things if you go there. One you're going to have an exhilarating experience. And two, you're going to need to follow some basic rules. When you get there, there is going to be the master, uh, the jump master. Uh, you're going to meet with him, and he's going to go over these rules. And so in case you're thinking about this, I want to go over the exact rules that they're going to go over with you. First of all, don't curl up into the fetal position, okay? And the reason why is because you could slip out of your harness. That wouldn't be ga- bad. That'd be bad because... That's where your parachute is, right? Um, You are to arch your back and hold your arms out in front of you. Again, so you don't slip out of your harness and you get into the right flying position. They're also going to tell you that you need to stick out your legs when landing. Now, if you don't know why that would be the case, you should not be jumping out of planes, okay? If you... If you're like, why, why would you do that? Why would you go head first? Okay, no, you would put out your legs when you're landing. Um, next, do everything that the jump master tells you to do and do it immediately. Don't like, well, I'm not sure if that's such a good idea. I had other thoughts about how this is going to go. If he tells you or she tells you to do something, you do it immediately. And then the final one here, this is what they tell him. No pets allowed. Okay, so if you're thinking like, me and my hamster, man, we're tight, man, you know, and I'm, I've got my t- you know, little hamster and you pull it out when you're jumping, like, look, you know, ah. like, no pets, okay? Not allowed. Why? Well, you understand, you know what, there has to be some non-negotiables. If you're going to make it, you're going to land and you're going to be alive when this is over, uh, there is a right way and a lot of wrong ways to do this. That makes sense, doesn't it? But what if, um, let's say you're like, well, you know, there's that, that uh, skydiving club, but you know, there's one that's not too far away, a lot cheaper, and I love the philosophy on this one. It's got a cool name even, the Relativist Skydiving Club. I like it. 
you know, and, and you like pull in there and the plane's already going and there's this guy and oh, he's super happy to see you. And like, yeah, let me just put this parachute on you. Here, let me tell you a few things. And let me tell you what we believe here at the Relativist Skydiving School. We believe that everyone's desire to skydive is, it's, it's your right. There are absolutely no absolutes. We want you to follow your heart. Do as you imagine it. Whatever feels good to you, we want you to do that. And we'll see you when you hit the bottom or when you land on the bottom, right? Now, how many of you would feel comfortable taking your family to the relativist skydiving school? Like, if they're, like, kind of going on that and they're strapping that onto your kid, would would any parent, like, no, (laughs) we're not doing this. Would any of you, like, yeah, I mean, sure, I like, I believe in all ways. That that, that makes sense. Yeah, just whatever. Don't tell me too much because I want to figure this out as I go. Is anybody thinking, like, that's a good idea? No. You know that there is a right way to go skydiving, skydiving and a lot of wrong ways. You'd like to live. You want to have a good time. You want an exhilarating experience. But you want to end up in life. Then you follow what is told you by those who know. And I want you to know, God has given it to us in his word. The discernment given in God's word keeps us from falling to the dangerous deception in our world. And friends, this book is the truth. And that's what we hold to. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you.